Hi, everyone. This is Stefan, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Henrik von Werden. Henrik is the Dean of the Faculty of Sustainability at Lufana University in Germany, where he also holds a professorship in quantitative methods in sustainability science. Henrik was one of the first guests on the podcast, and you can hear our previous interview in episode number three, which gives a more general overview of his work and background. Today in this episode, we discuss Henrik's understanding of the COVID-19 data and how he used existing models to foresee its spread. We talk about the usefulness of using mixed methods to understand that data. And we talk about the implications of sustainability science or the role of sustainability science, how COVID-19 might change academia, and also what we can learn from this as a global change process. Enjoy. Henrik, welcome. You, I think, are the first uh, guest we've had on again on the podcast. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. It was a pleasure listening to all the different episodes. And well, since there's a little bit of a like timely topic for a statistician, it's nice to be around again. Yeah, thanks again. Well, we had a conversation on the phone, I think it was last weekend, and you gave me a pretty good overview of how you've been thinking about the coronavirus and the COVID-19 data, and particularly how you've been thinking about it. Um, all the way back since January. It'd be great to hear what you've been doing with the data and how this has helped you kind of predict and foresee what's been happening in the last few months. I was in the situation that I was sick at the end of January and it wasn't Corona, obviously, but um, I was just sick in bed and I, I didn't know what to do. So I, the data came in, I read the news and I started modeling a bit with it. And it was pretty clear that it was following in Wuhan and also other areas of China. It was following the typical spread pattern that you have a dramatic initial increase and then it ebbs a little bit down. You have an increase of maybe 20, 30 percent from day to day. And then it slowly and gradually through the severe measures in China, it went gradually down. And I was actually quite glad because I, I caught this linear downward trend a little bit before the internet. So it became obvious, okay, the measure seemed to work somehow. It's, the situation is improving. It's not as dramatic as it seemed for one or two weeks. And by that time, uh, it became clear that uh, the mortality rate is at least higher than with the common flu. And it became also pretty clear that this thing is very, very much infecting people, much more so than most other diseases that you have. So it was a little bit like a perfect storm coming together that you could see, okay, it, it infects a lot of people, but it also kills a lot of people in terms of the proportion. And that was basically when I, it started to dawn on me that this is going to spread. And uh, I followed the data and I already thought that it was starting here when we had cases in Bavaria, when there were 16 cases, I feel, I think 16 cases where people got infected, but uh, they managed to contain the spread, but then it uh, came to other countries. And ever since, you see similar patterns. So when you look to Italy, when you look to Spain, this is something that follows a very clear mathematical function. You know, you have certain modifications, you have data errors, but the overall pattern is very clear. And I then learned, since this obviously has a strong emotional component, that it's uh, also helpful for people to understand what's going to happen. So it's very unclear, of course, what's going to happen in a few months. But at least I managed to um, get precise for the next few weeks and to see um, the patterns that are evolving. And for me, it was quite interesting because I'm no medical expert. I'm not trained in this. I don't have much understanding of epidemiology besides a general interest as a statistician. And um, Actually, I, I feel I didn't change my mind a lot over the last two and a half months. It's just that more information came in and uh, the models, the parameters and so on got more precise. So for me, as a scientist, that was also a very interesting learning curve to see how you can get more and more precision with the data and studies that are becoming available. 
What were some of the tools that you used to first look at the data and were those tools which you had already developed? Actually, the modeling of the whole thing wasn't particularly special. I already had some models from the Ebola crisis some years ago and it's basically the same pattern. I mean, you adjust the parameters, the mortality is obviously different, but these are very simple models that I just uh, applied in R. So you can basically, if you uh, get the exponential growth right, you can get this into a simple linear model and it's some point it just ebbs a little bit down obviously but the predictions were pretty straightforward so when this was hitting the ten thousands of cases in china i was down to a model that could predict the next few days uh, with the precision of maybe a uh, hundred cases so there weren't many surprises you sometimes have certain glitches in the data when they change the criteria when they maybe um don't have enough tests and then they open up to clinical diagnosis and then you get more cases suddenly that happened in a lot of countries but it's very straightforward and you can even do most of the calculations as back of the envelope calculations that you just calculate the numbers maybe get some rough estimates and then it's becoming very very clear that's what's actually so remarkable about the whole thing, how wrong certain people even experts were in the past and you could somehow consider, I mean, you can calculate this stuff on a napkin and you shouldn't be that much off. I was a little bit surprised how also some uh, governments were discussing this whole thing. Yeah, why do you think that's the case? I mean, we had this data and from what I understood, the some of the Chinese data was, was posted back in January. Why do you think it took so long and why do you think there was perhaps hesitation or yeah, maybe hesitation is the right word to, to, to trust the models and what they were showing? So I think there's, well, obviously this is a wicked problem. So this is something that we never had before. This is completely new. There's no solutions known and so on. So probably people were just surprised by the sheer force um, and they just didn't consider this to become a reality. So that's the first thing. And then how governments individually respond to that. I mean, it's remarkable, you know, how some uh, governments did, I feel, a really good job and others are still uh, obviously not so good at it. So let's first look at the good ones. You have certain structures in place um, that are remarkable. So in Germany, for instance, the insurance, very early, the insurance business here had a number which you need to uh, basically get your money back for making a test, I think in January. And this is just remarkable, you know, how such a system is set up. So they go like, okay, there's a disease, people might need tests for this disease. Let's set up a calculation kind of like scheme of how the costs are going to be. And then we make this official. So these things were put into place very effectively and also tragic ones like Italy very early started with establishing triage protocols, even way before this was becoming uh, a probably plausible scenario for the majority of people. Obviously, some people knew this was going to happen. But um, if you look then at the governments themselves, I think there's, like I see basically two groups, the ones that try to prevent a mass panic and the ones who were genuinely wrong. So you you had, for instance, the German government and also some experts that communicated that whole thing. I feel they took a little bit of a slow strategy. And you saw that in many countries, you know, that they went like, well, obviously, we can't shut down the daily life. Well, obviously, we can't close the schools. Well, we can't like have the business like stop running where well, we can't shut everything down. And then ultimately, they go like, yeah, okay, we're doing all this, you know. So and I... I wonder whether this was sometimes a very precise and also, I think, very clever strategy because you saw how some countries were a little bit like on the edge, how you had like these like mass panics where people went to supermarkets in, in the UK, in the Netherlands, and they in certain local hotspots, they bought a lot of stuff. So people were a bit on edge and I feel governments tried to take this into account. But then there were also governments who completely missed the whole picture. And that's pretty remarkable how, for instance, like an expert in the UK some weeks ago, when this was very clear that this is going to explode, they were still talking about herd immunity. And herd immunity, you know, for like the typical Western country with a really good medical system is a really good idea on a 10-year scale. Like a 10-year time scale, then you have enough ICU units to 
basically you have enough beds for all the people that need a ventilator. And otherwise the system gets strained and you have a lot of people dying. So how certain governments could still communicate that? I imagine some some countries didn't have a, a real strategy there. I mean, just let's take a look at, say, the United States. It's fairly obvious uh, that they didn't have a real strategy. And that doesn't mean that there were experts. Uh, they were not there. They were there. But they weren't hurt. They weren't hurt by the president. And I hope in the future, a lot of people will look very closely to who said what at what time and will try to make sense of that. Also, um, to maybe extend some understanding of how governments reacted differently. Yeah, I, th I think there's a good lesson here in trying to make data-driven decisions. And we had an interesting point when we were discussing on the phone the other day. And I think even within science, among scientists and myself included, was that when we saw some of the data coming out earlier, we had, or I had at least this natural bias, and I think many others as well, that, oh, this can't really be the case. It's overblown. I'm interested in your opinion as if you think that this is a bit of a, a wake-up call or a check on trusting our data and trusting our models and, and using that as, as, as a basis for decision-making? The last few years, if not decades, were a time, I feel, when um, science increasingly opened up to society because we realized that we are in this together. So this arrogance that we had before uh, was partly replaced. It's still there, of course, but I feel we open up more to have a joint dialogue and learning from each other. And I feel this is very important. You know, it's like if you would ask me, I, I wouldn't see a difference really between society and science. We are in this together. But what is important is whether something is plausible, you know, and whether something uh, can be generalized, whether we understand certain patterns. And there it was obviously the case that like what I learned really the hard way out of this is there are some people who just see the data however they want to see it because they are certain experts. So when you're an expert in a like large epidemiological spread and you believe like herd immunity is your research thing, then people saw herd immunity. And uh, so same like in say economics where some people say, you know what you need, you really need growth. That's the best thing. Like if you have economic growth, that's the best thing. And it seems as if in epidemiology, you have some people who have the exact same opinion. And that is obviously wrong. You know, this now becomes more apparent that they were wrong. And I think we need to recognize that, you know, that sometimes very early people heard the wake up call in society and people in science were gnarlingly wrong exactly for the reason because they didn't look at the data. So I had some really, really detailed discussions with a lot of scientists when the lockdown started and they just weren't convinced and they didn't look at the data. And of course, there are uncertainties, you know, it's, I think they were also um, probably, we were know in the mid run right in terms of certain things, but there were just arguments, you know, that when you feel, yes, okay, we don't know how many people we have that don't show symptoms, but that doesn't change the fact that people are dying, you know? So like when you think of social science and social science, sometimes people talk about hard facts. And I think right now we should evaluate our actions by these hard facts. I mean, there's a lot of people dying and that cannot be ignored. And whatever else is happening about the speed of the spread and about like how many people we don't detect and so on, it ultimately doesn't matter. You know, like now we have hard facts and that is people dying. And we should, I think, guide our actions through that perspective. And I hope there will be a certain discussion about how valid uh, certain perspectives are and what is more important then. I think this is a, a debate. I'm no expert, but I'm really looking forward to this, to that we also evaluate a little bit the different perspectives that we had at times and that we learn from that. Because obviously some people just opening a channel on WhatsApp and saying, you know, this is all rubbish. This is just like the flu. Like, that can't happen, you know? This is something that we need to learn, that this is then down the road killing people. And I think this is a severe problem. I think this 
is a good opportunity as well. We were, we were talking about this on a podcast, which will come out soon as well, about this opportunity that we have now that the public is so engaged in in this issue to to inform the public about science as well. And so many people are captivated by the news and so many people are, are following this very closely. And I've, I've never been sent by family members so many links to these sites which show the data and the different models and the different graphs from people who I, I never would have expected to, who were interested in those types of things. And I think there's a big opportunity to share that. And, and I'm wondering, because I do get the impression that a lot of the mainstream media tends to keep things a little bit too simple for the public. And I think there is a, a desire to learn more about uh, how the models work, for example, how the data is collected, what uncertainties are in the data. Would you see this as an opportunity for for science to to step up and explain things and take this as an opportunity to communicate our science? I mean, like I think Germany is a very um, specific case to this end for many, many reasons. But um, first of all, we were lucky. Obviously, we were dealt a good hand because it was detected in a very like early and tamed way here. Um, and then it, what's interesting is like uh, there's this uh, expert who made a podcast who really got quite famous and many people are listening to him and it's really very recommendable. So there you already see a change, you know, that somebody, some experts informs uh, the society and that is being like caught up. So that was, I feel like I witnessed that for the first time, you know, that something is happening and while it's happening, an expert is informing I think in the beginning, when you look in general across all the media, and that uh, counts Germany in as well, is that many, many people um, didn't understand that. And this is why things such as herd immunity were discussed still a few weeks ago. This is why people didn't get the growth patterns right and so on. But I was like, I felt a little bit, it was like a roller coaster, you know, it started like pretty weird and then it got a little bit more and more on track and ultimately then you could predict all the loops and all the jumps in the data and so on and people seem to get a hang of it so when you look at the like landscape of the media it's actually quite fascinating i feel the media had a bit of a head start i mean i personally i uh, look at the bbc i read the new york times then there's the german tagesschau and I felt that wasn't really bad. I mean, that all seemed to work and they all saw, okay, this is dramatic, like this is going to explode, this is going to be serious and so on. They still try to, of course, maybe uh, calm here and there, but that was pretty good. What was most impressive to me, I must say, is that when it happened in China, of course, I tried to get information from China. And um, that's because of the language issue, a little bit difficult. And what I discovered, um, there was um, some uh, newspapers called the South China Morning Post, which is, uh, I feel, from Hong Kong, I think. And um, they have a news app that is for free. And that was for me the most remarkable thing because not only did you have a lot of information that was really from the people directly affected by it, so also Hong Kong, so you really had like witness accounts and so on. But what was even more remarkable is they had always the most latest information also from medical experts and even publications they cover very regularly. So for me, it was remarkable that such a newspaper that might in the like Asian region be quite famous, but that I frankly never heard of. They basically covered the whole thing better than all the other media that I witnessed. So now they are on my phone. I have them as an app and I will use them, I think, in the future. So, and the other thing, what I also witnessed for the first time is that you have uh, blogs and podcasts. I already mentioned one in Germany and also vlogs. So that was very interesting to get accounts out of Wuhan from people describing the situation. This is what I witnessed for the first time. We had this in some disasters before, but since most disasters before were typically compressed to a shorter moment in time, it was in a way then more dramatic, but differently covered. But now you really had accounts from the people that were kind of like in the meltdown. And that for me was quite grasping and also very emotional to see these accounts out of Wuhan and now unfortunately out of New York and other areas. A lot is coming out of Italy and so on. 
So I feel the media landscape changed a little bit. And this has become more obvious, you know, that was already with the tsunami some years ago. I think that was also a moment of change because you had so, so many mobile phone cameras that covered that. But now it became really a staple of the information that I got. And I feel like uh, quite privileged that we have such a direct link. You know, the BBC wrote an article, what would have happened if this would have been in 2005? You know, you wouldn't have had YouTube, you wouldn't have had real decent internet, you wouldn't have had what we do right now using an app to connect and so on. It would have been quite different. I want to transition a bit over to what, or a discussion about what the implications might be for sustainability science, for how we think about sustainability science going forward. And one of the things I wanted to get your perspective on was using methods in cross-disciplinary or cross-context environments, uh, particularly this modeling data. I'm going to see what you have to say about how the models and the statistical tools that you've had and you've applied to other data sets um, and how that's useful for understanding this type of data. So let's start with uh, sustainability science in general, because I think this is, uh, with all the tragedy, this is also a very dramatic opportunity. Because for the first time, people, I think, on a really wide societal scale feel the emotional impact of the responsibility of the individual for the whole society. Because if one, people now makes, one person now makes a mistake, potentially everybody can be affected. So this is, I think, uh, also almost like an opportunity. And the same also with the timescale. Typically, sustainability science considers years, if not decades, now it's weeks, but still, if you mess up, if you make a mistake now, if you act wrong, then uh, this creates ripples and you have these butterflies effects that are propelling down and in one or like two, three, four, five weeks can really create a very, very difficult situation for many people. So, and that automatically means that you have society in there, you have a long-term scale in there, but you also, in addition, have this kind of, like tension between the individual and wider society. And this, of course, opens a door to a really mixed methods perspective. Because what I did very early on, obviously, I already mentioned that I looked at the numbers, I looked at the data that was coming out, but I also looked at other sources. So to me, it was very interesting to get accounts of people that infected each other. So how is this spreading through families that live together? Can a spread be prevented there? So this was information that came out of Wuhan and where I tried to then basically um, change my priors, you know, change the probabilities in the model. And I always adjusted the model accordingly. So a study came out that funnily then went again where somebody got infected over a large distance, four and a half meters. So that's also, you know, you start tinkering with the odds, like how can this affect people? And I think one of the um, points, also my personal low point was when we went into lockdown in Germany and when I just saw in my surrounding, okay, this is not working. Like people seem completely unimpressed. Everybody was moving through the street as usual. Well, and then I felt was well, this is maybe a very localized perspective. So what I did is I went to the areas close to the hotspot zones that we had, where you had the severe outbreaks in southern Germany and western Germany. And I went through to the cities and I looked at some webcams. And I saw a lot of people moving, a lot of people moving around. And that was my, my personal low point because what I realized is, okay, all these people now, they um, are already, like many of them infected and they are spreading it and they are infecting each other. And that was something, you know, where I saw, okay, I need to look at other data. So webcams became pretty important. So when I see something, uh, for instance, recently went to Jakarta and looked a little bit around in Jakarta, like how is that affecting people there? And look at webcams at different uh, countries where I'm worried about. And that's pretty remarkable, you know, how you have these sources. And of course, then you have the first medical papers coming out. This is often very precise data. You then have uh, data about couples and how is it if one person has it, the other one not, how's the rate of them infecting each other. And then sadly, of course, the mortality, 
So that took quite some time. You know, you have to understand what might be the overall mortality. And that seems to be around some something like 1.5, 1.6%. So South Korea hardly ever lost the grip on that thing. So they always had enough intensive care beds, seemingly. They had a lot of genetic testing because they are one of the global leaders in genetic tests. So they had the capability to really test this thing inside out. And with that, you could get a hold of the mortality, you know. And then people, of course, they discuss the Italian healthcare system, which I think is very unfair. And then you had the same debate about Spain and about the UK and so on. But the point is just figuring out the mortality. You have to take the intensive care beds into account. Then you start looking into pre-existing conditions. So it seems as if seemingly people have a heart condition, have diabetes and so on. This is uh, affecting them. And now, uh, very sadly, uh, the first accounts came out of the US where you see that different ethnic groups are affected. Uh, so African-Americans seem to be severely affected. That's quite unclear. A recent study showed that there's a certain correlation between the pollution of counties and how people are affected to this end. I haven't looked at it yet. I just glanced at uh, the overview, but it seems there's a relation. So, and then you start getting more and more data in and Basically, I never stopped looking at the primary data, looking at studies, trying to get some information and seeing how this changes the priors. Well, and then to close the circle to sustainability science again towards a solution. So I think, yeah, there might be uh, some, some drugs that come out that help, but I think they only help. So a vaccine seems to be the logical endpoint of this thing at some point. I think, and I'm no expert, but I still think a vaccine is the most important thing. And for the first time, you know, it's like, we don't like techno fixes. I know that. But the evidence of the models um, that people did on mobile phones, this is overwhelming. Like if people would use mobile phones and you could track this, then you just gain in speed that this thing takes away from us because this thing is nasty. When you look at the average five-day period of incubation period that people uh, guess, and when people are infectious, before they show symptoms and so on, you need to get a head start. And mobile phones seem to be a pretty good ticket. And this will be uh, the ethical debate that we will have in the next few weeks, whether certain nations will pursue that. I mean, the Chinese are already having such apps. And that's, I think, pretty important to have this discussion because at some point we want to go back into the streets and meet each other. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things to follow up on there. And one, well, the first thing that you mentioned was this, this collective learning, this idea of collective learning that you're an individual impact can affect the group. And you know, this is basically the structure of a collective action problem, which is is so many of our environmental problems which we have at the moment, including climate change. And another note that we, we had in our document to talk about was the, the interconnectedness of, of people and how this pandemic is really just showing how interconnected we are with many different things, including the origin of the, the virus itself, most likely coming from uh, wildlife trade or open food markets um, and the link between those ecological trades and, and food production and food and health safety and then the interconnectedness of people across the world through through airlines. And the second was, you know, what does this lead to in the post-COVID-19 world, assuming that we can develop hopefully a vaccine and, and save many lives through that and, and, and get the, the world back running again? What are some of the, so the issues to reflect on from your perspective? My hopes are that what I personally learn out of that um, is, of course, the most important uh, thing that we have is each other, um, how we connect with each other. And I hope more people will realize that uh, the track towards consumption that the economy led us on and this, you know, really strong individualization where we try to define ourselves through our opinions through uh, the way we see things and also how we present ourselves, that this becomes less important. I think the connection to each other, this is what I hope, and this is very naive. I have a very naive worldview, but this is what I hope will be the most important thing that comes out of that. So learning this 
through distancing. That seems to be something that what I feel in my surrounding uh, resonates with a lot of people because we all miss each other. And I saw incredible acts of kindness already uh, where people are, are very careful with each other and support each other, help each other. And I hope that this will go on, you know, that we realize, okay, we were a little bit on the wrong track here. You know, and it's not only the like human interconnectedness, but I mean, look at the, the economic situation, like these teleconnections, this just doesn't work out. You know, we can't like endlessly ship things like across the globe. Like obviously this creates severe problems uh, and we should look at that. And of course it's the same with transportation and so on. Like people commuting by airplane, it's kind of like always I think pretty clear this is a stupid idea, but now people may realize it. And then again, also digitalization, right? I mean, before it would have been pretty weird to always talk online to people, but I now find some like interesting ways. And I also hope that this will develop further and that the problems that we have now, so I hope someone uh, figures out the Bluetooth headphones. Like it seems Bluetooth is the biggest problem that many people have right now. But it's it's really interesting how we learn to interact with each other and sometimes also weird. Like I now give lectures in front of 160 people, uh, not too often because I try to make it on video, but like in the beginning now I made one slot and it's just eerie, you know, to have these 160 small images and you hear nothing but yourself. So I think the like digital learning curve will also be severe. But as I said, this is all just like side dishes for the most important lesson that I hope that people get from this. Look, maybe it's just nice to be with other people. Mm, yeah, that's an important reflection. I wanted to get your insights a little bit because reflexivity is such a large part of sustainability science and, and reflecting on the practices of, of science itself. Given that you have a pretty prominent leadership role being the Dean of the Faculty of Sustainability, what are some of the reflections that you've had on on managing the faculty and with the university? And what are some of those things which you mentioned, one being digitalization and, and teaching online? What are some of the challenges that you faced? And I imagine many people and many universities and institutes are facing around the world. So it'd, it'd be interesting to hear how, how you've dealt with that and some of the challenges, probably also some of the upsides to this situation. So I must say, of course, the last few weeks, so and to give some perspective, so I feel responsible for a thousand students and for about 300 people. And I'm part of a larger university. And um, of course, this is a really fascinating experience, you know, to have this very, very condensed, uh, like in the beginning, a little bit of a crisis mode, but we very strongly early on agreed that we want to get back into a normal mode. But just to give some proportion, then we had meetings with a circle of 40, 50 people for two hours every day. And um, that was kind of the heart of the whole changes that were necessary and that were being implemented. And I can really say when I look at that, when I look at the university structures, when I look at the individuals that got engaged in that, but also when I look to our students, when I look to the employees and so on, I was overwhelmed by the joint spirit. Like, I really feel privileged, you know, to be at Lafana University and to really work together with everybody there because it was such a joint venture, you know. It was such a, like, spirit of being in this together, trying to help each other, being there for each other, but all the while being, like, really goal-orientated and solving all the problems. There were really, like, hardly any debates about, like, ah, uh, but we can't do this. You know, we were just past all the, oh, we can't do this. So a lot of things were figured out on the fly and we went right into teaching. You know, we were a few weeks before the semester and the semester started now. We got all the online tools up and running and it was really nice, you know, to be with all these people in this together. But all the while, the largest toll that I felt on myself, on my team, and also on uh, other people that I uh, talk to is the emotional side of the whole thing. So that was the like really large down point to realize how much 
this is affecting people and how much we have to be careful and we have to be there for each other. So that was really something um, that I think we all should take out of that, that this is all just too fast, you know, also before the crisis. Like we should just slow down. And we should be on the lookout for each other. And it's sometimes hard. I mean, there's sometimes, obviously, there was now a lot of stuff compressed into a short time. And this was also one of the challenges that I learned, that in this uh, special situation, sometimes I knew a lot of stuff and I couldn't spread the information fast enough. So that's, you know, a little bit of a question of the resilience in the system. And I think we did pretty good, but I felt sometimes bad because I knew like all this stuff was happening and I really needed to like figure out a way how I share this with people, but not just as a mere information, but as a recognition of uh, the problems they felt, you know, and to really like be together with them although we are so distant through all these digital phone calls. So that was a real lesson. This disbalance of power that you have in a crisis mode, that is something that I never learned in this way before. And I'm glad for the patience of some of my colleagues to wait for information to uh, really just a few days, you know, have a few days pass and then, you know, okay, now we got a solution. But as I said, the like, overarching spirit was just fantastic and i'm still like like i sometimes just lean back and try to remember all the things that uh, happened during the last few weeks it's almost impossible to comprehend how do you think this is going to change your research and outlook going forward and perhaps your engagements with students going forward so obviously science is resolving a lot around papers publications and I'll continue to do that. I still think this is one of the staple of knowledge production in science. But I also learned that if you if you give like a small presentation, if you make a video or something, and it doesn't need to be like totally serious, you know, maybe it's a little bit like borderline fun, that this can be something that we should absolutely do. Maybe it was a little bit out of time constraints or like lack of the potential for experimentation was a little bit too serious before. And now I realize, okay, like if I give a lecture now, I can like make some of the serious stuff, but I can also have fun. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious when I stand in front of a lecture hall that I can have fun and I really enjoy it interacting with the people. But when you do that through video, when we do such a thing as a podcast, when uh, we just, you know, sometimes have a thought and think, why don't I put that online? You know, if this reaches a few people, that's really good, I feel. You know, so I think also having this interaction uh, through these possibilities, which are the only ones we have right now, I will go on with that. So I will go on publishing, but I will also try to make a little bit more video stuff, try to make a little bit more like writing here and there that is not in the scientific form, just to um, try out new ways of knowledge production. And, and yeah, maybe I was just a little bit lazy beforehand. I think I didn't have the time. You know, and now I realized, okay, this is important for people. It seems to matter for some people. So why don't I continue and just try that a little bit more? I was thinking this morning, you know, what is it that I actually do? And it made me reflect a little bit on what the role of, of an academic or a scientist is. And I came to the two categories. I One is knowledge production. I should be involved in producing knowledge. And the other is knowledge dissemination. And... I was trying to then classify or categorize the different tasks which I do within both of those two categories. And, you know, so something that Michael jokes around uh, a bit on this podcast is is PDF production. Sometimes we're a bit over obsessed with PDF production through papers and journals. I think there's a huge opportunity to use digital and online tools for both the knowledge creation process, which can be not just collecting data in a traditional sense, but also engaging and discussing with, with other scientists, which we, we tend not to, to do as much, I think, beyond our, our traditional university settings. And then knowledge dissemination. I mean, the traditional outlets have been what I was thinking. I mean, of course, we are producing PDFs and we're publishing them in their normal outlets and those get sent around digitally. The other traditional one has been conferences and as we see now, that that's, has become more difficult, but we're also learning that we can communicate through these platforms like podcasts and there's a sort of free market of radio now through podcasts and there's a lot of 
competition and innovation in that space, which has is, is really helped. And I wonder if you also see it in that frame. Do you see knowledge production and knowledge dissemination as the two meta categories of an academic and perhaps opportunities to broaden those two spheres? Yeah, and I, like what I learned out of that, I mean, before, like for some time I was on Twitter and I just discontinued because yeah, it was somewhat interesting, but I didn't see the point because I felt unconnected, you know? And now this is somewhat different and this is what I learned from our students because I feel I miss them, you know? It's nice to interact with them and I learn so much from them, but I also feel I have a responsibility for them. So if I make now a small video greeting from the dean, you know, this is then my way of reaching out to them and uh, also getting some interaction back because actually they made a remix of my video, which I consider to be quite fun. And um, there I think, like, why would I, you know, be on, say, Twitter or why would I make such a video just to expect that I take the internet by storm? I think this is the general misunderstanding that I had beforehand about podcasts, about videos and so on, that if I do that for the faculty and I reach the faculty, that's good enough for me. That's actually pretty good. I like that, you know, and I don't want to be out there and be clicked like a few thousand times. Like if I make something that is specifically for these people, then this is just a different form and an email wouldn't be the same thing, I feel. So I feel we are a little bit in the media landscape when it comes to podcasts and so on. Like we instantly think of Radiolab and think like, oh, we could be like world famous. But maybe sometimes a podcast is just a nice thing for a few people. Maybe it's for a community or for like smaller circle of people. And, and I think that's nice. I mean, that's really something that we should absolutely do. We shouldn't always think of the globe. No, I, I definitely think so too. And that's something we've thought about with our podcast, that there are these digital niches to fill and there, there's a lot of voids there, which are not really covered, particularly in academia. There's a lot of niches within academia. And you know, if you just think again of the traditional modes where we reach out and disseminate knowledge, one is teaching in the classroom. So we have so many students who sit there and one, the other is conferences. And those are so many colleagues who we only meet at certain intervals pretty infrequently. And yeah, I hope the podcast is something which creates a community. I hope as bad as the situation is, we realize the value of the communities that we have, uh, both in our personal lives, but also in understanding the role of community in sustainability science for, for problem solving. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Maybe, you know, Another thing is like right now we are having a lot of debates about whether we should open up again, you know, so in the US, this is still sometime down the road in Germany, this is now starting. And I think, again, you know, it's like we, we talked about the beginning, like how all this is exploding, how this affects us. And we said a little bit, maybe a vaccine, maybe there's another possibility that this is going to come to an end and we're going to learn something out of that. But I think especially like from, I dare say, an ethical perspective, this debate about our rights, about our data, about other uh, things that are included in there, like who's important now, work-wise and so on. This is basically a very important debate. You know, this is something that we also need to learn from and where we need to engage now. Because, again, this is a question of responsibility, but this is, you know, probably the most complicated debate that we have. And this is a little bit like a debate that we should have about inequality in the world, that we should have about economic benefits that people have, and about privilege. And I feel, you know, it's, I, I recently heard a debate from some people where, where somebody said, and it was, of course, in Europe, you know, and they were meeting in an in a online channel. And they said, I know I'm really privileged. I know I'm in a really rich country. Like, I know I should be happy, but I'm not. Like, I just feel really bad right now. And all this, like, knowing that I'm privileged doesn't help me. So I feel also, you know, in this point, we went a little bit over the line. Yes, we are very privileged, but this is not the measure that we should pursue. You know, this is just as if we put kind of like the flip side of what was wrong before and realize it's wrong again. So we should consider um, kind of like seeing things through the perceptions of people. And if people yeah, are privileged, but they still feel in a certain way, then that's also something that we need to take into account. And naturally, I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. But if we don't do this, this is going to backfire. 
this is going to backfire in the near future because then people say, you know, I feel really bad. I go outside. I don't care. So that's going to be a problem. But also if we go on, because the, the most tremendous impact of this thing is going to be in the global south. You know, it just came out a UN report that said that like, uh, half a billion people might be, uh, go back into poverty. And this is very serious, you know. So, like, really also perceiving this and making people understand that, that, like, what happens when this affects sub-Saharan Africa? Like, how are they going to cope? And how are we going to help them? And what can we learn about our perception of how we help them? And how can we learn from them? You know, this is something that I feel like this whole in-between process bef between the where we are right now and when this thing hopefully at some point is going to end. This should be a blueprint of the debates that we should have in the future. I really like that perspective that now... You know, this is the time where a lot of people's ears and eyes are open for having discussions that we might not have been able to have in the past. I think one of those is putting healthcare, for example, on maybe a human rights agenda in a lot of places. And another one is seeing again the role and importance of government. I think that's, there was an interesting article, I can't remember the outlet, unfortunately. If I find it, I'll link to it in the show notes. But the role of government, it becomes so apparent in, in this crisis and... Yeah, I liked all the reflections you had there. Those are just two two things which I, I thought of at the end. Do you get the impression that this is, yeah, changing a bit of the the discourse on the role of the state? In many ways, I feel, and I'm no expert, but what I really loved about the whole debate is that in Germany, you, you know, you have the federal system. And obviously, several states reacted differently. Some were like pretty like harsh, which I, I felt was pretty good. <laughs> And others were a little bit like not so serious in the beginning, which then changed and people criticized that. But then when you look at the US, I mean, the federal system and the governors was one of the best things that could happen to them. And it was a very interesting uh, podcast uh, on the daily about it, about the return of the governor. Because obviously the head of state, the president, just completely, yeah, didn't get his job and made basically every mistake he could make. And that's, I think, interesting how something that in Germany was criticized then in the US was basically a pretty good thing to happen. So this can be seen from different perspectives, you know, and also like when you then consider China, I mean, many people criticized China in the beginning and they said they didn't get it. They kind of like try to like uh, silence the whistleblowers and like all these things. China flattened the curve uh, most dramatically and fastest, I think, you know, and they were like pretty decent. Of, yeah, of course, in South Korea, but it was a different situation probably in South Korea. So uh, the how China dealt with this was pretty impressive. And many people in the US were blaming the Chinese for not taking care of this crisis. And now look at how they are affected. You know? So that's something that we should learn out of that, that some people were on a pretty high horse when it came to finger pointing to one country or the other. So again, the perception of the people, yeah, that's one thing, you know, but then we need to talk about that and we need to clarify that and we need to explain it. So I feel the like whole role of governance, this is something that is up for debate because I can't really imagine, you know, how you put a dollar bill on some person's life. If people now say, yeah, we should open up again, you know, it would be ethical to do that. Like we need to get the economy going. Like people don't want to be inside anymore. Yeah. How many people exactly are we going to sacrifice for this freedom? I would really like to have a number about that. So again, like we have to realize, you know, that this is not something that you can, I think, uh, solve through a perspective of utilitarianism. So we need a more open debate. And we need to be aware of the consequences then. And I think this is going to uh, change again um, how we see governments. And I hope that many people will look very closely at the media of the last few weeks. And I took regular screenshots of who said what and try to understand it and make sense of it. Because then we might see 
which government was, uh, I think, doing a better job than others. And I hope people take the consequences out of that. Do you think we're going to see an increase in accountability towards global leaders? I mean, I hope so. Because, I mean, look at Brazil. Uh, like, obviously, the president there is by now pretty isolated. But some people already argue that, yeah, of course, he's acting that way because he knows who's going to be affected are the people in the favelas. So, like, for him, it's almost like, yeah, finally, you know. So, this is such a, like, I, I don't even know where to begin, like, on how many levels this is wrong, you know, on how many levels it's wrong that somebody like the president of the United States can give an interview to Fox News and say, yeah, I would love to, like, reopen the economy in two weeks, you know, and that's just I hope, I just hope that somebody like still pays attention to this in a few weeks or months because it can't go on like that. I think we basically threw ourselves a little bit out of the window with this whole kind of like how people are elected and for which reasons. And that's something that we should learn. You know, it's like even, I mean, unfortunately, then some of the government leaders are directly infected, uh, you know, and that's something like that even we discussed in the dean's office like what would happen if i would get infected you know like how can i be replaced so that's something that people really need to take into that whole equation and that's that shows us how good we are on top of things yeah, absolutely not yeah well thank you henrik for for all these thoughts and reflections do you have any final thoughts so i hope you know that this will not go down as the most serious natural disaster that we ever had on this planet, but it just might, you know, at least the ones affecting humankind. So people should be aware that right now this is on track of being part of the of the history books. Of course, we had the comparisons to 9-11 in New York. Uh, we had the comparisons to other disasters. We have to be aware, you know, that this is really something that we will take into the history of our species. And we should really consider this now as a last thought, this very long-term perspective. Because if we don't learn anything out of that for the next decades to come, then this is a missed opportunity. Mm, that's a good closing thought. Thank you, Henrik. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can find more information about all of our guests in the show notes for each episode. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, where you can share and further engage with the content, as well as give us your recommendations for future guests. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of a larger project called the Environmental Social Science Network, www.essnetwork.net. On the website, you can become a member and use all of the resources provided for free. This includes webinar videos, a blog, a knowledge base, and using the website as a platform for your own projects. We appreciate your support.